Hey y'all, this is Jeff Ryder of Gravity Matters from Cloud Wrangler Comics, and you are listening to Adrian Has Issues, because you are smart. Hey everybody, welcome to Adrian Has Issues. I hope everybody's having a good day. For us, it's been, well, at the time of this recording, it is November 9th, 2016, and let's just say, to address the very orange-faced elephant in the room, it, it's been a rough day. It's uh, the day after election day, so we don't have to go too far into it knowing who won, so for some of us, it's kind of been a, a weird day, but... Obviously, the show must go on, but um, me and my guest have uh, been kind of coping in our own way. I mean, in between getting psyched up for today's show, um, I know I've been uh, helping myself to the uh, <laughs> to uh, the, the liquor in the house. And well, I'm I'm not gonna lie to you. This is gonna be an interesting one because I'm a little bit looser than I like to be for my podcast. But on a day like today, I think we need it. <laughs> That's when you need, yeah. It, man gets you through the day right <laughs> my guest you've heard him on several shows before let's see you were on episode 29 of the world according to maggie where you and your uh artist sean dylan were on a show talking about your comic sweetie and uh let's see you're on episode 67 the history of comics which uh you came on solo and basically you were a total boss like you just came in and dropped like some comic book knowledge and we had so much fun doing the episode and we'd only covered such a small section of comic book history that we had to do it again for a part two so please welcome back comic book writer steve petravelli steve how's it going man um i've been drinking more than you have so i might be a little bit looser than you are so Oh, don't and worry. I, I can catch up fast. <laughs> I've still got some rum in front of me, so this could be an interesting show. But we've got some fun stuff to talk about. The thing is, is that when it comes to comics history, Golden Age and Silver Age is really kind of my forte and really where I know more. So I was really excited about this episode because I thought it'd be a little bit more of a dialogue. When you were on a show the first time, and I mean, I have a little bit of background information as far as the early stuff, but obviously I'm a little far removed from it, but, you know, and I guess probably generationally speaking, you know, the stuff in the 80s closer to the 90s is like, you know, around the time when I really started getting into it. So that stuff is, I guess, a lot more prevalent to me. So I think this one will be really fun, but I did enjoy really being like the student last time. So it was cool just kind of sitting back and basically getting schooled on a lot of stuff that I didn't know about beforehand. And there's still things that like I learned, like I'm currently listening to an audiobook about Will Eisner. And just like learning about his life was is just very interesting. And like he was such a private person just to like go off in a little bit of what I've been learning about him. Like when he died and his family like went to his funeral and stuff, they like had no idea how big he was in the comics world. Like they're like, oh, yeah, he drew comics. But like they didn't know like there was an award named after him. Like he was an extremely private person. Like it's crazy to think like this man who if you look at kind of how everything is really revolutionized the industry was extremely humble. So uh, we kind of left off last time, ended it with kind of like the 70s and how things were changing at Marvel and DC and stuff like that. Right. And really what I wanted to start out with was, besides what was going on at Marvel and DC and kind of thing that was almost helping along with making this change, what was going on in in the 70s and the 60s with the, the underground comic scene and and that was called that was like comics with an X. Like that's kind of like was the whole thing was that, um, you know, it was this really big underground comic scene that kind of went away. And now it's kind of coming back. This idea of making your own comics, you know, screw the publisher. I'm going to do my own thing. And that, that kind of idea has finally kind of come around, I think, with the Internet. Right. And being able to make your comics almost a little bit more easier. But that was huge in the 70s. Gilbert Shelton with the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers is one of the huge ones, um, as well as who what many would probably call the patron saint of indie comics. The founding father would be Robert Crumb. Robert Crumb is a very interesting guy. 
he did comics that were very sexual. You know, he actually got his own movie uh, made by the same guy who did the very old Lord of the Rings movies. Really? Yeah, the Fritz the Cat movie was written by uh, Ralph. I think his name was Ralph Bacci. He did the Fritz the Cat movie, but he also did the old Lord of the Rings movies. That's so funny. funny. I never actually put two and two together. Yeah, but like Fritz the Cat was like like over-sexualized, and there was like anapromorphic animals, and there was boobs, and like, you know, like it was they were trying to do everything that mainstream comics wasn't. Like, like there's a documentary where Robert Crumb basically says on purpose, like the first thing they did was break every taboo in the book. Like that was the first thing <laughs> they wanted to do. Uh, Robert Crumb still, uh, I think it was in the 2000s, he came out with um, he, his version of Genesis, his story of the Bible. So he was still coming out with work. He's best known probably for Fritz the Cat. He did a guy named Mr. Natural. And the one thing which um, he's still pissed to this day about because he's done some lectures is he was the one who did the kind of thing to keep on trucking. Like that, that whole, like that saying that was going on through the seventies, that totally got stolen. And because like he didn't copyright it, like he didn't get anything, but like, you know, kind of is how it is. But, uh, he basically said he was living in Cleveland, Ohio at the time. He originally, I think he was from Pittsburgh. I think he was originally from PA. Might have originally been from Philly. I think he was my originally actually been from Philly. Oh, cool. Yes. I think he might actually originally be from Philly. Then, um, he moved to Cleveland. Worked for a green car company, hated it, and then um, ended up just moving to what a lot of people did back in those the late sixties. He they, he moved to San Francisco, you know, went to Hate Ashbury, um, and you know, just made comics. and And there was a whole group of guys that were doing that back in the day. All they did, you know, they they get stoned, they make comics, and they sell them in the head shops. And that's just kind of how that kind of all went. Now, while he was in Cleveland, he met. This guy who is one of my personal favorite creators and someone who I think is kind of forgotten nowadays. Uh, his name's Harvey Picar. Which is a goddamn shame. It really freaking is. <laughs> I'm a huge Harvey Picar fan. Like, that really bums me out that his name doesn't seem to pop up a lot these days. Like, and it seemed like after American Splendor, you know, the movie they did with Paul Giamatti, it's like, you know, after that, you don't really hear much from these days. I mean, I know he passed, but I mean, as far as like his work, I mean. By the way, in my opinion, I still say to this day, the American Splendor movie is the greatest adaptation of a comic book to movie. I mean, it's a little easier because it's just people, but Paul Giamatti like like was Harvey P. Carr. Yeah, he nailed it. He nailed him so well. So American Splendor was an independent comic that was created by a guy named Harvey P. Carr. Harvey P. Carr was the everyday man. Like there is no other way of putting it. He went to college, didn't finish, got a dead end job working as a file clerk in a VA. I think it was a VA hospital. He was really into jazz. So he would write jazz reviews. He loved books. He was a smart man. But, you know, he kind of like, you know, just just kind of got stuck in this rut. And through a matter of happenstance, met Robert Crumb because he used to collect comics. And after he collect comics and he started collecting records. And because he liked comics, you know, his a friend of a friend introduced him to Robert Crumb and they started become became buddies. And, you know, this is when Robert Crumb was in Cleveland and Harvey Picar basically, you know, one day thinks about, you know, I wish I could like, you know, tell stories. You know, I wish I, I bet I could tell comics, that kind of thing. And so literally what he does, as you see in the movie, is that he makes little panels, draws stick figures and makes little scenes. And these are themes about everyday life. And that's the thing about American Splendor, which was really like kind of revolutionary in a way. And the reason why I love it is because it was about life. It was about it was just what happened to Harvey, you know, the, the classic one, which they show in the movie, but it's still probably one of the best is, you know, stuck behind an old Jewish lady in the supermarket. <laughs> I love that bit so much. And that's all it was. And as the story goes, you know, he showed it to Crumb. Crumb thought it was funny and he drew it and he was able to make American Splendor, uh, which went on for many, many years and is really one of those like classic indie comics. American Splendor to me is, you know, the start of that kind of like slice of life, just real life comic books. And that's the stuff that I ate up, like, let's say late 90s, early 2000s. It was around the time of the Onslaught X-Men event, and later on with Grant Morrison's new X-Men, 
there was a time where I basically swore off superhero comics because, you know, I was yeah. that, that bitter kid who was like, you know, superhero comics are stupid. And, you know, that's when I started reading, I guess, what I guess we now know as alternative comics, yeah. which is very much, you know, like I said, very Picard-esque in terms of just very slice of life. And some of it maybe was a little bit more fantastical, but yet just very much about a lot of the stories about slackers and, you know, people just living their lives. and. I became such a huge fan of that, and that's actually how I found about Harvey Pekar, because I started working at a comic book store and found a copy of American Splendor, and I'm like, oh my god, like this is like everything I love in comics, but then, you know, superhero comics got good again, and I sort of forgot about it. Oh, and Daniel Klaus was another big favorite of mine at the time. Klaus is another indie giant. Dave Sim was Cerebus. There were these guys that kind of had these stories to tell. And just told them, you know, and Picar ended up winning a lot of awards. He did a book, collaborated with his wife called My Cancer Year, where he got testicular cancer um, and him just dealing with that. And it's brutally honest, but it's a beautiful book. And he was also very famous to be on the David Letterman show. He was like a frequent guest on the Letterman show. And the thing that's hilarious is like while he's gaining all this fame from all these comics, he stayed at his job. You know, he, he continued to work at a file clerk because he said he liked being a file clerk. You know, <laughs> he just was a very, very kind of this is me kind of guy, you know. And, and I've, I've found in my life I enjoy people who are who they are and they are not abashed in saying this is who I am, you know. Right. And, and Harvey P. Carr was definitely one of those guys. And when he died, it, it was a loss. But like, you know, I think I think for him, you know, he he never wanted fame. He never wanted fortune. He just, you know, he, he wanted, you know, he's like, I think I can tell some stories and, you know, and, and he did. From that kind of came what's known as the black and white boom. Through the 70s and the 80s, you start to see a lot of, like we talked about Cerebus. Uh, we talk about Love and Rockets with the Hernandez brothers. Oh, God, I love Love and Rockets. Like, I still want to do a whole podcast based on that comic alone. Love and Rockets is one of those books that I, I wish that I've read more of. I haven't. But it's service, love, and rockets. And then the, I call the Mac Daddy, <laughs> has to be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And the way the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came about was really interesting. Basically, Kevin Eastman is on, this is, this is how Kevin Eastman and, and Peter Laird met, the creators of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Kevin Eastman's on a bus. And back in the day, and it's kind of still happening a little bit now, but back in the day, you know, guys would get together and just like make a zine, you know, make a comic zine. And sell it for free or have it, you know, at, at a record store or have a head shop for like a buck or like 25 cents or whatever. Right. And so Peter Laird had a zine that he was putting out and Kevin Eastman just happens to find it on a bus ride home. And he looks at it and it has like, I think it has an address. It has an address on it. And he sends him a letter saying, hi, Mr. Laird, you know, I would like to send you some of my samples, blah, 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 blah. And he sends him a letter back saying, sure, come on, show me your stuff. And he shows him the stuff. And, you know, they both were huge Jack Kirby fans. And Peter had a original Jack Kirby from uh, uh, the comic called The Losers that Kirby did for DC. Um, and they kind of just gushed about Kirby and, you know, just kind of started working together and drawing and basically formed this friendship. And they're very different people. Kevin Eastman is very outspoken. He's very type a personality versus peter who's a little more subdued one night while they were watching tv kevin just draws a picture of a turtle with some nunchucks and says hey this is a ninja turtle and peter's like oh that's cool and then so he drew another one that was like a little more like in depth and then kevin drew four of them all with different weapons and then peter's like like, oh, that's pretty cool. Let me like, you know, let's let's make a cover and let's call it the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, and that's kind of how it started just with this joke. And they were just like, OK, you know, we need to tell the story about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And they made the first issue. They borrowed some money from Kevin's uncle, I believe, to print a couple thousand copies. They were able to get to a couple comic book stores and they sold out. The book really hit a nerve. And those early Ninja Turtle books are very different from what most people think about them. They're a little more mature. You know, they're a little a little darker, but that's just, you know, that's the thing is how things were kind of going in like the 80s. 
Right. Now, the only thing is, though, I don't know if you're going to mention this. I apologize if I'm jumping ahead. But I know the story I heard for a very long time was the fact that the comic was based off of, like, oh, not really a parody necessarily, but it lifted a lot of elements from, like, let's say Frank Miller's Daredevil and um, the New Mutants. It did. It took a lot from Daredevil. It actually also took a lot from Jack Kirby. There were a lot of dynamic poses that Laird and Ethan both themselves, they said, were kind of not ripping off, but paying homage to uh, Jack Kirby. Um, and it's not just the simple thing of having Splinter being stick and, you know, like the foot in the hand, but like also just like the way the dialogue was, you know, the way that things advantage of the ninja craze that was kind of going on in the 80s at the time. And the thing that a lot of people forget about is that in the first issue, the Shredder actually dies. The story is, you know, people always ask them, you know, oh, why, why did the Shredder die in the first issue? And their basic response was, we didn't think there'd be a second issue. <laughs> they basically sat out to just make the best comic that they could. In doing so, they created what became an indie cult phenomenon. There were a lot of stores where it was outselling, you know, Marvel and DC books, you know, and some of the more like, you know, urban areas. But like, you know, still like that's really impressive. And it has become probably... I would say out when it comes to comics, I would say you know, Walking Dead might I, I would say it's bigger than, you know, because of how long it's been going on. I would say outside of like, you know, Spider-Man, Batman, you know, what is bigger than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I mean, we're talking about, you know, what, three generations or not three, yeah. de- three decades of this comic that was supposed to be a one off thing. And it's 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 kind of funny how it kind of works out and how this book that really wasn't supposed to be anything has gone to like, you know, have different, you know, you had the 80s cartoon and then you had the 2000 and then you had the movies in the 90s and you had the 2000 cartoons. Then you had the Michael Bay movies and they had all these different things. And it's interesting to see how this little black and white comic made by these two guys who really just made it on a lark became this like huge, huge empire. And it's 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 really inspiring to see that in a lot of ways that no matter how crazy an idea is, you know, if it's a good enough idea and, you you know, you get enough people behind it, you know, you get that good fan base, it can definitely have legs. Yeah, and that was so weird considering that, let's say, by the time I was a kid, you know, early 90s, because obviously I could have swore I probably watched as a kid in the 80s, but I was probably too young to maybe understand it. But obviously early 90s was, you know, Ninja Turtles crazy. Yeah. But then I remember one of the tapes I had seen or had but it was like the 10th anniversary from like 86 to 96. And at that point, it's like in the late mid to late nineties, like, you know, turtles were sort of, I want to say dying off, but then, you know, power Rangers were a thing and, you know, X wonders, all these other big phenomena and turtles weren't huge. But then fast forward another couple of years, it kicks up again. And my little cousin's watching this. I'm like, Oh, have you seen this show, this new show called Ninja Turtles? And I was like, and I had to literally tell my little cousins, like I was watching it when I was his age. And that scared the shit out of me. Cause I'm like, a, I'm old and B. Wow. This shit's been around for ages. It has, you know, I mean, I, I grew up as a huge turtles fan, you know, I wanted to change my name to Leonardo when I was a kid. Cause he, you know, that was my guy. Um, and it's just, it just kind of, you know, I think you're right. Power Rangers kind of took over for a bit, but then it kind of came back to the turtles and, you know, it's, it's, it's this crazy idea, but you know, it's one of those things where it just like it, it resonates the idea of brotherhood or whatever it is kind of resonates. So I love the turtles and, you know, I'm really glad to see that it continues to this day. And, but again, it all starts with Kevin Eastman, Peter Laird, just having fun making indie comics and it turns into a juggernaut. And when we're talking about juggernauts, segue, something else happened in the 80s that was a huge, huge deal. Uh, And I'm going to touch on it quickly. It's Crisis on Infinite Earths. This was basically DC saying that we have all these multiverses going on and we need to get them all into one. A problem that seems to keep happening over and over (laughs) again. (laughs) Um, They can't fix it. But this was like the first kind of really big event. You know, this is this is a really big deal. I, I've read Crisis. I've read it through once. It is a hell of a book to read it is not for beginning comic book readers. You know, it is just very thick and just, oh, my God. 
But, but it's funny you should say that, and I don't mean to cut you off, though, but, you know, you say it's, like, this big event that's not really for beginning comic book readers, and I wonder if that's actually the issue that other big events keep happening, is the fact that a lot of these events really hinge on the fact that you know who all these players are. So outside of the regular comic book fan base, no one can really get into it. So I wonder if it's like, okay, you're basically feeding the beast that is your normal fan base, but yet... Uh, no one else can really get into it. Yeah, I, I think that's an, a problem that the big two have keep having over the years. You know, we could go into a discussion about that, but like, you know, Crisis to me, it's it's twofold. One, it's it's got a lot going on, and two, the way it's written is is 1980s style, and it's very different than the way the things are written nowadays. So what they did was, you know, a, a huge thing trying to combine all the multiverses. You know, and basically rebooting the entire DC line, uh, you know, killing the Flash, killing Supergirl, you know, really trying to make this feel like it has an impact in the industry and then restarting from scratch. I've today was reading because um, it's one of my my favorite stories is the uh, run that comes after Crisis when they rebooted Superman. They did Superman Man of Steel, which was written by um, John Byrne. Um, of X-Men, which, you know, you want to talk about the X-Men, you know, John Byrne, who who drew the X-Men with Chris Claremont was then basically plucked from Marvel after that and then said, hey, will you do Superman? And he, in my opinion, wrote one of the best Superman runs of all time uh, with with Man of Steel. And so that's a big deal, you know, and the reason I talk about Crisis, I didn't want to talk a lot about individual events, but the reason it's a big deal is because that was kind of the really big first retcon. It was kind of the really big first time that we said, hey, we're going to change things. We're going to retell the origin of Superman, which is what they did in the Man of Steel series. You know, they retold him going to Metropolis, you know, instead of him just being like a kind of like a geeky kid. You know, he did play football, but his parents are basically like, you're almost too good. You're scary too good. So we're taking you off the team, uh, <laughs> which is pretty much what happened. It was very successful, maybe almost too successful, because now DC does it over and over and over and over again. Even though the last time around with Rebirth, I thought has so far has been great, and I'm very happy with the way it's going, but, you know, they seem to do it a lot. It worked out the first time. Why am I success? Exactly. And, you know, reprinting number ones, people love those number ones. But when we talk about the 80s and we talk about changing comics, there's one year in particular, and if you're a comics fan you know what year I'm already going to talk about. That's 1986. 1986 is kind of a milestone in comics. And a lot of people say 1986 is when we start the modern age of comics. And that's really because of two books that came out of DC. Uh, One being The Dark Knight Returns, which in Frank Miller's words, basically him getting Batman his balls back. (laughs) Sounds like a very Frank Miller-esque thing to say. It is. And then the other one being arguably what many have said the greatest graphic novel or comic book story of all time watchmen um both coming out in 1986 these books both kind of led to this grim and gritty that we would see for the next some odd years dark knight returns is and i'll be the first one to say it, and i might get some flack for this it's not my favorite batman story i don't even necessarily say i don't like it it's just i think it's very of its time yeah, I will agree. A guy who's been on the show, um, Aiden Wilson, who's an artist, um, we were in the process of reviewing uh, The Dark Knight 3, The Master Race. So we kind of were going back and kind of comparing and contrasting to the original. And you're right, it's very much an 80s book and every which way in terms of how it's written, but also, I guess, the politics of its time. Yeah, like Reagan politics. Like when I worked at a comic book store and people would be like, oh, you know, I, I really want to get into Batman. And there would be a lot of people at the shop who would want to be like, oh, you need to read Dark Knight Returns. I wouldn't do that. I would give them Batman Year One. I would give them some of uh, Scott Snyder's run. Because I felt like if you're a kid, if you're like someone who was born in the 2000s, you know, you may not relate to that as well. Versus Watchmen, which I feel Watchmen, you know, because Watchmen to me still reads very well just because of just how good it is and like i I don't know if i get flagged for that of saying like you know oh you dark knight dark knight is what it is but to me i think watchmen is just such a a great book alan moore basically he said to destroy the idea of superheroes 
that is what his goal was with Watchmen. How Watchmen started was Frank Miller had been doing the Swamp Thing run. And the Swamp Thing, if you haven't read Elmore's Swamp Thing run, please do it. It is one of the best things he has ever done, in my opinion. I actually enjoy it more than Watchmen. There's more of it. Like, there's lots of volumes. But I love his, his Swamp Thing run. It's one of my favorite things he's ever done. But with Watchmen, basically, he kind of pitched this idea because DC had just acquired the Charleston characters. Blue Beetle, The Question, uh, Captain Adam, and a couple other ones, which I don't. Which is funny because those are like some of my favorites. And basically, Alan Moore wanted to tell the Watchmen story with these characters. And so like Night Owl was Blue Beetle. The Question, created by Steve Ditko also, uh, The Question was basically Rorschach mixed with uh, Mr. A, who was also an indie creator of Steve Ditko. Alan Moore was also a huge uh, Steve Ditko fan. Captain Adam was basically Dr. Manhattan. And there was a couple of the characters oh. that aren't as big nowadays. He wanted to tell the story with these characters, but DC basically said, which would have been true, that if you tell this story with these characters, we will never be able to use these characters again because you're <laughs> basically destroying them. You're basically... You know, showing that they're nuts or they're just loser. It's just like, you know, you just you couldn't. You, so he, they said, you know what? This is an amazing story. You need to tell it. But you kind of have to use amalgams of them. It really took the comic book world by storm. And to this day, you know, it's one of those books that if anyone owns a comic book, you know, if, they, if someone owns a graphic novel, it's probably Watchmen. You know, Watchmen, you know, I, I'm looking at it at my shelf right now. It is one of those books that is just considered one of the greatest. And it really is, you know, it really is a book that, you know, not only when it comes to the writing, but also the art by Dave Gibbons is just spectacular and, you know, really changed the way of everything when it comes to comic book characters. You know, it's funny considering we talk about adaptations a lot, but, you know, I think a lot about the Watchmen movie. Yeah. And it's pretty faithful to the source material, but I never thought that'd be a thing. I'd have to complain about that. It's almost too faithful. Zack Snyder, like, very famously was almost using the book as a script. And um, I enjoy the movie. You know, I, I, I knew it wasn't going to be what the comic is because you can't, you know, anytime everyone's like, well, the book is better than the movie. Well, of course it was. You have a book that is very intimate, very personal versus a movie which has to be made, you know, that has to be confined to two hours versus a book that can be read over and over and over again or, you know, can be very expansive and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, I thought the opening sequence is beautiful and amazing. I love the opening sequence. But, you know, Alan Moore did his take on the comic book world, which was talking about the golden age, but also kind of talking about the idea that any person who puts on a spandex suit and fights crime is probably insane. <laughs> we talk about that with Dark Knight Returns of Batman, because I think around this time is where you start seeing a lot of those stories where Batman is no longer necessarily like a Cape Crusader, but he's just seen as this whack job who's maybe a little too obsessed with his job. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And like, you know, the 80s, and that started when things got really kind of a little more dark, a little bit more different you start seeing a change at Marvel and DC. And we talk about Frank Miller with Daredevil, and we talk about all that kind of different stuff. And one thing that really starts changing is towards the late 80s and early 90s, when it comes especially to Marvel, is that it's not the story that's selling the books anymore. It's the art, which is very different than how things kind of, I think, are nowadays. I think the art helps, but at the end of the day, you're looking for a story. But when you look at the stable that they had with Todd McFarlane on Spider-Man, you had Jim Lee on X-Men, you had Eric Larson, Jim Valentino, Mark Silvestri, Rob Liefeld. You had all these guys coming in. Art was what sold comics in the late 80s, early 90s. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back where we'll learn about the birth of Image Comics. Hello, fellow nerds. Check out our network site, nerdslot.com. You can also connect with us on social media like the Facebook, the Twitter, and the Instagram. If you like what you hear, look for NerdSloth on Patreon and consider donating to help us continue delivering quality shows straight to your ears. If you'd like to help the shows out for free, head over to iTunes and write a heartfelt review. I mean it, make me cry happy tears. But seriously though, anything you can do really helps us out and we love you for it.
And we're back to Adrian Has Issues, and I'm speaking with sweetie writer Steve Petrovelli, and this is part two of the History of Comics, and before the break, we were just talking about how art was driving comic book sales in the late 80s and early 90s, and I figured this was a good place to stop, because what we're getting into is something that... Maybe at the time, I personally didn't realize how important it would be in terms of the comic book industry, but talking about the formation of Image Comics and how a lot of Image was made up of some very key personnel in terms of Marvel, correct? Yeah, it was all Marvel, guys. Um, and, and that's the thing. It really started with Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld. And, they, and Todd was really kind of the first one to really feel like, you know, I'm seeing my Spider-Man artwork on a t-shirt and I'm not seeing a cent from that. You know, he, he's seeing that, you know, Spider-Man sales are going through the roof and he's not seeing anything. Uh, Tom McFarlane is a very outspoken person, extremely outspoken person. <laughs> yeah. You're putting it mildly and put to put it mildly. And I've drunkenly done this. I think at Aftercon, and I'll do it now, but he, he has a speech that he's done several times. It's his watch speech where he's like, he's like my dad, worked in the factory for 40 years and they gave him a watch he's like and i make the number one comic for this company i don't even get a stinking watch you know i don't get anything he would kind of go off on that you know <laughs> it, it's weird he he's from canada he lives in arizona but he sounds like he's from brooklyn doesn't make any sense but tom mcfarland was an, was very much an evangelical when it came he was kind of bringing back up with Neil Adams had really started and kind of had waned a little bit, which was this idea of creator's rights and, you know, really controlling the character. Now they didn't create these characters, but there was a lot of merchandising going on now because comics were starting to boom again. Right. With 1986, with the early nineties, comics were becoming very popular again. And a lot of that had to deal with the artwork and Todd kind of went around he went to Rob, uh, talked to Mark Silvestri, Will Portacio, Jim Valentino, Eric Larson, and really, you know, started just like going with these guys and be like, come on, man, like, screw those guys. We can do this on our own. You know, we can go out and, and you know, and, and do our own thing. The last person that they were able to kind of get on their side was Jim Lee. Jim Lee was doing great on the X-Men books. Yeah, because his run in the early 90s, late 80s was pretty legendary because that's pretty much around the time when I started reading X-Men. So, you know, his art was plastered all over it. So, I mean, at least to me, I was a very big fan of his stuff on that run. And besides McFarlane, and depending on who you are, you could say bigger than McFarlane. Jim Lee was the biggest name of the kind of image, uh, you know, image founders. It was funny, Jim Valentino himself, when Todd was talking about, you know, we can go out on our own. You know, Jim Valentino, who was a little older than them, was at an age where he's like, yo, like, we did this back in the day. When we were talking about comics with an X, you know, he was there doing that. You know, and he's like, he's like, yeah, we can do it. And so one day, Todd kind of walks into Marvel's office and basically says, we're leaving. I don't know what it would have taken to keep them to stay at Marvel. I think they were pretty much were all set and ready to get out the door because of the idea of they weren't really getting any, you know, when it came to merchandising, when it came to not really getting recognition. Basically, they were told the reason that Spider-Man is selling well is because it's Spider-Man, not because not because Tom McFarlane is drawing it. Uh, you know, and that was the, the company line. That is how they went about it. They walked out, and, and my favorite part of the story is that they then went across the street to D.C. <laughs> and D.C. is, like, flipping out there, like, oh, my God, we've got Tom McFarlane, Jim Lee, all these guys, they're going to come here. They're leaving Marvel. They're not happy. They're going to come over. It's going to be like Jack Kirby Part 2. They're going to come over here, and we're going to take over Marvel. And they and they, and then Todd, basically, because Todd was the figurehead, basically said, uh, no, we don't want to work for you guys either. So wait, what was then the point of going over just to be like, hey, we're starting our own thing? Basically to just tell them we're not going to work for you either. Well, wouldn't they have figured that out when they realized that, you know, they weren't approaching him at all? <laughs> well, the thing was, is that like they just kind of also because Todd McFarlane was just, I think, just kind of being a pompous jerk uh, in a way of just being like, you know, it's kind of, you know, F you too. <laughs> probably more of what it was like he kind of took it as they would think that they were going to do this massive coup 
and then be like, oh, by the way, you know, we're going to try to, you know, change the industry. And in a lot of ways they did. When you look at Todd McFarlane's Spawn, when you look at, you know, Wildcats by Jim Lee, Eric Larson, who's still doing Savage Dragon. Oh, that's still going on? Yeah, to this day, he's still doing it. That's crazy. Which is nuts to think about. Yeah, because I don't know if there's any run on a comic that's lasted as long as that one has. Or, I mean, I'm probably wrong in that case, but please correct me. I, I Not that I know of. I mean, there there might be somewhere. I mean, like, Superman, they've renumbered it, but, like, you know, he's continued. He's basically said, as long as people are still reading it, I will continue to draw it. So what you got from Image is you got basically breaking down into different studios. You had Todd McFarlane Productions, which was Todd McFarlane. You had Wildstorm Productions, which was Jim Lee. You had Highbrow Entertainment, which is Eric Larson. Shadowline, which is Jim Valentino. Top Cow Productions, which was Mark Silvestri. And you had Extreme Studios, which was Rob Liefeld. And pretty much the only rule that they all agreed upon was, I think, two rules. One which was any that you made, you owned 100% of. And two, that, like, the image I was, like, the only thing that was trademarked. Like, you know, like, that kind of thing. Like, the image I and the image name was, like, the only thing that, like, really they, like, held. Right. And in the beginning of Image, like, it's kind of weird, because if you look at Image now, you think of creator of comics. But really, back in the day, it was these guys it was the the image founders that's what image was that's what it was seen as you know and, and they continued to break records with selling spawn with selling wildcats with selling young blood and all that kind of stuff they really changed the industry in a way of showing marvel and dc it's not just you know the characters it's the creators themselves and i had someone recently ask me you know do you think an image could happen again do you think there's someone with enough clout that could do it? And kind of, my answer is no. I don't think there's anybody big enough in comics nowadays that would make as much noise as they did. Well, at the time, you know, let's be real, like, at least in that era, you know, it really was a Marvel and DC joint. Like, I mean, obviously there were other companies who were maybe doing things at a very small scale, but, you know, and to this day, you know, you could argue that they still hold of like a bulk of the comic book share but yet now with so many comic companies and you know independent books being made if anyone broke off let's say from marvel and started their own company yeah i mean it'd make news in a sense of let's say i don't know um I don't, you know, I don't want to say they want to na- name a particular name, but, you know, let's say like a big Marvel or big DC writer starting their own company, but yet with so many other people starting their own imprints. And I'm not saying that it's not special, but at the time it was seen as huge because it's like, wait, it was kind of unprecedented, especially with so many superstar artists at one time. So, I mean, it would definitely make an impact. But I don't necessarily think it would make the same impact. Like, I don't think it would happen exactly the same way like this did. Yeah, and to be just completely forthcoming, I wasn't really around when this was going on. You know, I was born in the late 80s. And, you know, I I read, I started probably reading comics, you know, when my mom, when I would either go to the mall that there was two malls that we would mainly go to. And if I went to the mall that had the comic book store, I would beg and plead to get a comic or I was lucky enough to get into a a Wawa, as they are known here. Uh, if you are from the Jersey PA area, you'll know what a Wawa is or a, you know, 7-Eleven or something that had a newsstand that had comics. And I would beg and plead for her to let me have a comic. And that's how I started reading. But like, I didn't really know what was going on in the whole scene. So like, I didn't really know about the image boom. I didn't know about really any of that stuff. I, that's kind of new to me and I, i've gone back and like i said I'm, I'm a documentary junkie and i and i watched a documentary that was made and i think it was about 1990 like it, right in the middle of the image boom and in the documentary they go up to a bunch of kids a bunch of you know probably preteen, teenage kids and they ask about 20 of them what's their favorite book and every single person except for one said spawn and that's kind of when it hit me of how big this truly was you know, that these guys were rock stars. You know, these guys were, were huge. It's crazy to see that what image has turned into. And um, like I and, I and to kind of come back what we were talking about in episode one about the idea of the X-Men book, um, you know, should have probably been canceled back in the day. You know, does image happen? You know, image changes the industry 100 percent. 
because that's when you start seeing Marvel and DC really taking care of their creator. Now, I think a lot of people could say they could still take care of them more, but they they kind of saw, oh, shoot, there's a place that they can go to, you know, like especially nowadays that like they're like, oh, crap, we can't have this kind of happen again. And image really changed the industry. Now, for me, image isn't especially older image isn't really my cup of tea just because I'm not a fan of the early 90s where it was more about the big muscle bound art <laughs> really violent and the writing wasn't spectacular that's not me that's not what i'm into but i can still respect what they did jim lee is not one of my favorite artists um actually i take that back there's some stuff that he's done which is gorgeous but he knows what sells books um jim lee's got massive art talent and if anyone who's just like read like his like x-men work and like some of his dc work if you haven't seen some of the stuff he's done for, like, um, I think he did a book for, I think he did a Sandman book. Really? Or, no, it was a Fables. I think he did a Fables book. And he just freaking blew it. Like, the guy's got our talent coming out of his ass. <laughs> and Image just really changed things. But they also hurt the industry in some ways, too. And Marvel and DC and Image kind of knew what was selling books. And that was a lot of number ones. A lot of special events, a lot of holographic covers. That was the big thing. The speculating period was huge in comics, you know, because about this time in the early 90s, that's when Superman number one was selling or, or Action Comics number one and Detective 27 uh, selling for $300,000. And people see this and they go, oh, crap, comics are, are worth something. And so you see hoarding x-men number one you see people hoarding Spawn number one uh you see people hoarding the these books death of superman death of captain america in the same documentary that i told you about in the 90s there is a woman who no joke says that she's buying death of superman the death of superman that came in the black poly bag to send her daughter through college and then she's going to buy the other book when he comes back and that will send her through med school or law school. Which was crazy considering that now you go into 50 cent quarter bins and all those books are just like stuffing those short boxes or long boxes. I was looking stuff on online once and the most expensive that I found death of Superman, the best deal, basically the, the way that you can make it worth something if you have the polybagged version that still has because it came with like a bunch of different stuff in it, like it came with like like a black like kind of like armband that you wore and like it had like a fake like Daily Planet like Superman dives. If you have all of that still sealed in the black polybag, it is worth twenty dollars. <laughs> I mean, granted, twenty dollars maybe you can like you know put gas money in or something, but you know. And the thing is, is like if you get me at a con and you put a couple drinks in me. And I start talking about some of the things that I think is really wrong with the comic, with the comic book industry. And I think part of it is variant covers. And part of that becomes is because I am so the speculators almost killed this industry. And the reason is, is, is I always put it this way. And I do this math because I'm not good at math. And this is easy for me to think about. Let's say that there's a certain comic. And let's say that there are 50,000 people that are buying that said comic. But they are all buying two copies, one to read and one to save because it is going to be worth millions someday. So in total, that comic company is making a is selling 100,000 copies of that comic. Now, when the bubble burst and people realize like, oh, this this isn't worth shit. This isn't worth the paper it's printed on. That 50,000 is then going to drop not to 50,000 buying one comic. It's probably going to drop to maybe 25,000 drawing drawing one comic maybe even less 20,000 15,000 buying that one comic so you go from printing 100,000 comics to maybe printing and you're still printing 100,000 but only 15,000 20,000 are buying it which leaves you with 80,000 comics that aren't going anywhere and that is where Marvel declared bankruptcy and as much as Image did great things to do it they took advantage of it Marvel took advantage of it DC took advantage of it and I don't know if I said it back on episode one, but in the 1950s with, with, with Frederick Wortham, that was the first time that the comic industry almost died. 
the second time the comic industry almost died was with the speculation period. They just oversaturated the market with so much stuff. And to this day, you know, I, I, it worries me. It worries me when we have all these variant covers. It worries me when, you know, this, they, they really, really get on the whole collectability idea of it. And, and they get that speculator part of your brain. And, and to me, that's part of what almost killed the industry. So to me, that, you know, almost is upsetting. Like, I don't necessarily dislike the idea of variant covers, but I think maybe with a little bit of, um, I don't know, I guess maybe for like a term, maybe like, I don't know, self-control, you know, because there's so many different incentives or, you know, variants of, like, so many different companies have their own. And I get it. It's kind of cool to have. But, I mean, is it killing the industry? No, I wouldn't say it's killing it. I mean, I, I don't know. Personally, I feel it's a little hyperbolic. But I kind of feel like it is maybe a little misguided because it de- definitely does sort of hurt it a little bit. I don't necessarily say it kills it, but it definitely is one of those weird sore spots. But, you know, there are some great variant covers that I do love. And there are some great covers. But to me, you know, if you're planning on on buying a variant cover in the hope that you're going to get rich off of it, good luck with that. Well, that really comes down to then the consumer. You know, if there's anybody at this time who's still thinking that now, if you're going to maybe flip it for like a really quick profit kind of thing. Yeah. Like, that's one thing. Like, obviously, there's unless you have an Action Comics original still sealed and like, you know... CGC, you know, 9.0 rating that's pristine. Like, you know, there's very few comics that you could make like an absolute just killing off of. Now, if you have been have a few of them, maybe you can make a decent amount of money, but no one's getting rich off of a comic anymore. And, you know, it, it would take a lot. And I would say the probably the most recent example of a comic going somewhat up in price was the original appearance of Spider-Gwen which I bought, which I didn't even realize was going up in price. That's something about two fifty now. The only book I would say within the last, it would have to be within the last like 16 years now that has actually done that was Walking Dead number one. And the reason that is, is because no one bought the first print and it was a low print run. Well, number one's a saga, actually, I kind of was able to make a decent money amount of money off of because um, I didn't realize I owned like a first print of that. And if I were smart, I would have held on to it and probably got it graded. I probably could have made more off of it. But it was one of those things like I had this book and I kind of needed the money. So what's it going for? I didn't even realize that. I maybe sold mine for like, let's say, 130, 140. Damn. And it's like, if I had held off because um, a friend of mine who used to go to the same comic book store as me, he's like, you should probably pick this up because, you know, he was saying you should get it because it's a good story. But, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I flipped through it once, but I'm like, all right, you know, it's good, but I don't see myself collecting this anytime soon. So I sat on it and it stayed in its uh, sleeve and I probably could have got it graded and probably could have fetched a higher price because if I'm not mistaken, those uh, first editions went out of print pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I have a first edition of it somewhere. I don't know exactly where it is. But I had a buddy who could have bought a Walking Dead first edition number one before the, long before the show came out. He was just a huge fan of the story. So when issue 50 came out, and he could have bought a number one for about 100 bucks, And um, he didn't do it, and he's kicking himself to this day. Yeah, it happens. Like, I mean, it's one of those things that if you just happen to come across a comic that could probably fetch you some money, you know, and you're looking to get rid of it. Like, that's cool. Like, but like, yeah, and, and and I would agree with that. I don't want to make it sound like I'm like, you know, bashing anyone. Who's oh, like, no, I'm not accusing you of doing that, but I'm just saying personally, like, that makes sense. But if you're going to buy a comic with the sole purpose of trying to make, you know, a huge amount of money, like if you have a couple of runs of things maybe you could probably make a little bit but it's very hard to just basically collect a bunch of comics just for the sole purpose of making a living off of it because it's just it's not that kind of market anymore i don't think no it 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 really isn't and you know the way things have gone after that is you know marvel filing bankruptcy in dc you know if it wasn't for warner brothers really wasn't faring that well either and the thing that really changed all of that was when the movies uh, for Marvel, especially um, there's a book that I've still been trying to find 
Um, I found it, but like I, I like audiobooks. It's just how I am. Uh, I've been trying to find an audiobook version of it, but it's basically about the bankruptcy and the sell- and the selling of Marvel in the late 2000s, um, and how eventually Avi Around uh, kind of came came out of it. It started with the selling off of properties, you know, selling Spider-Man to Sony, you know, selling Fantastic Four and X-Men to Fox, you know, and them turning into movies. And that's kind of what turned Marvel around um, in, a, in a lot of ways. And it's interesting to see how that's kind of brought comic books now back kind of in the forefront. And not because of the comic books themselves, but because of the movies and because of everything that's going that's that's been going on. You know, I remember seeing um x-men i still have at my at my parents house the a vhs of x-men oh so do i <laughs> i remember watching that movie recently going oh man like we thought this was like the hottest thing <laughs> we thought it was amazing you know it was and, and I, I always forget how old that movie is you know i think it's 1998 99 i think it was even 2000 which is funny considering that like blade was and you know not to go too far off topic but it's kind of unfortunate that x-men gets all the credit for sort of reviving comic book movies, and yeah, Blade always gets left out of the conversation. Wesley Snipes says he's ready. But think about in the face of, you know, Batman and Robin coming out, comic book movies are seen as sort of toes, you know, spawn kind of bombs around the same time. But here you have an already superhero movie with a black lead. That'll never happen again. I was trying to find the first the first X-Men movie, but... I think that's... Summer 2000, if I'm not uh, mistaken, that came out the same summer as uh, Mission Impossible 2. Yeah, it's 2000. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's crazy to see how things have kind of turned out and how, you know, Doctor Strange just comes out and I actually haven't seen it yet. And to see all these characters that, you know, really were at one point in very much obscurity kind of coming into the limelight, you know, is, is, it's pretty cool, you know, and I'm hoping that, you know, start to see some other things start getting adapted um, into movies. But I'd love to see some some more of the indie stuff, you know, really uh, maybe possibly get out there. But that's also up to the creator. I'd love to see someone's take on blankets. Oh, that would be really cool. Yeah, I'd love to see that. But I don't know, Craig Thompson, if, if he even wants that. The movies have really come out and really kind of revitalized the industry in, in a way. Whether Marvel or DC, you know, whether like, you know, you think DC is doing a great job or, you know, if you're excited about what's coming up, you know, it definitely has brought them back in the forefront. The fact that you see little kids dressed as like Ant-Man and Black Widow and, you know, Falcon, these characters who you had to be a comic book nerd to know about, you know, is is just is nuts. It's crazy. But like, you know, it's really cool, kind of cool to see. And I really hope it, it continues. I, I really hope that people kind of, you know, I don't know how long the superhero trend can continue. It's hard to say because, you know, if I know anything about trends, like there is at least as far as like maybe mass appeal, you know, there's always a drop off point at some, at some time. Yeah. But yeah, if I know anything about other comic book fans or people who are involved in it, like we will support a character or at least these properties almost to the death. Cause I mean, look, I mean, there's a reason why some of these things have thrived as long as they have. And maybe will they be like billion dollar movie makers? Maybe not. I mean, maybe the budget might get a little bit more modest and maybe they won't have these huge turnouts, but I think that we're looking at something a little bit different than what we were used to in the past with a lot of trends, you know, for a while, like, you know, sports movies are big and things like that. But considering the fan base is so dedicated, like, I think they'll be around. I mean, but yet maybe not in the same level of spectacles they once were, you know, because like, I don't know. I don't I don't see it as being a genre for like a better term. I don't think it'll be a genre that dies. I hope not. And like my biggest fear is that the Marvel movies, when they stop basically producing hurts the comic book industry as a whole. I, I really do. That is my, my biggest fear. As you can tell with these last two issues, well, it, even with the first episode that I was on, I am very passionate when it comes to this industry. And, and you are too. I love this industry with every fiber of my being. And the idea that it's kind of out of my control, what kind of happens to it is kind of scary because, you know, 
and and I hate being the whole just like you know going into the whole just like oh I'm I'm a real comic book fan you know because I think anybody who wants to pick up a comic do it you know I don't care you know if you know I, I hate the idea of saying like you had to have read all of this before you can read that you know anyone right. should pick up a comic and do what they want but at the same time for me you know there aren't as many people that have as invested as much as me and a lot of my friends you know I hope that someday some other guy is on some other podcast. Maybe that point would be a hollow cast. Who knows? <laughs> oh, that'd be badass, but <laughs> it'd be I, like Zordon doing my own podcast. <laughs> I hope that in the future, and, and, and I think this is a good, good word to end because this is my positive outlook as positive as I can be as today is. I hope when the future of comics comes around, um, the next, the next, you know, when the next guy comes on to a podcast in, in 50 years, he's going to be talking about, um, you know, uh, John, Johnny C. He's going to be talking about Stan show. He's going to be talking about Jay Jacob and the creator after con. He's going to be talking about Jeff Ryder and uh crowd wrangler. He's going to be talking about Erica Schultz and Rika Jang, hopefully myself. But what I'm saying is that there is a large crop of indie creators now who love this industry and that want to make their imprint. And not because they want to be famous. It's because they love this industry. And right. and I hope that within I forgot about Sean, you know, Sean Dillon as well. You know, I, I hope that these people, when it comes to the history of comics, are the next. I, there, there's something common. The next. Me and Johnny C were drunk at Create After Con talking about the next phase. I'm hoping that I'm a part of it. I'm hoping that you're a part of it. And I'm hoping that everybody listening is also a part of it. Yeah. And let's let's be real, though. It's not even a matter of when it'll change. It already has changed. And I think that's sort of even reflecting, like, let's say a lot of our social climate where people who are reading comic books now are a lot different than let's say the comic readers I used to you know experience when I'd go to stores as a kid you know it's not just you know like let's say the stereotypical comic book guy from like the Simpsons you know there's so many different people who are writing and reading comics whose voices you didn't really hear a lot of now will it be the same way that it's you know has been maybe not and some people will say it's taken a nosedive and other people say it's been elevated but yet I think the audience is slowly starting to change and if I know anything about the people we've had on the show or spoken to, let's say, Creator Aftercon, a lot of these people aren't the same people we would have been talking to, let's say, 10, 20 years ago. So I think it's a matter of, I think the climate's already changing. It's just a matter of when will, I think, comics as an industry actually catch up? No, and, and I completely agree. And, and you know, you, you very kind of like gently went around it, but I'm going to I'm going to completely blow that up and say, that comics aren't just for skinny white dudes or fat white dudes with beards. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I worked at a comic book store in about 2011, 2012, and I came back and worked at a comic book store over the last year I, I recently left. And to see the, the demographic change, I thought was amazing. For a point where it was about 80, 85% dudes and, and 20 to 15% girls, to where it's legitimately 50-50 when it comes to guys and girls. And it is black people, white people, Asian people. It is everybody who's reading comics. It is not just for the white bearded dude who hasn't left his basement. And when you go to a creator after con, you see all these different types of people. And that's what I think the next phase is. And and when people get mad at, at Marvel for Riri or for, you know, Miles Morales for trying to, you know, for trying to change things, you know, you, you've got your comics. You can go back and you can read Iron Man stories going back to when Stan Lee and Jack Kirby started it back in the 60s. You can do that. Right. Let Riri have her time. You know, <laughs> let, she can. That, that's the whole thing with me is that because at the end of the day, you know, I know what Marvel's trying to do. It's not for somebody like me to be like, you know, it, it, or, or I take that back. It's it's two ways. One, it's what this country needs in a way that 
one, having a more diverse cast. But then two, which is what this country needs more of, is that it lets me it lets me be able to say, you know what? I can me as a white 20 something male, I can relate with a 15 year old black girl. <laughs> and, and honestly, the country needs it. No, like I know what you mean by that, but it's just like honestly, I, I couldn't help but kind of chuckle at that for a bit. But I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but like, that's, that's kind of what this country needs. And we have been drinking, so of course this is turning political. But like, you know, like and this all make it cut out from the podcast. I <laughs> I don't know. When I sober up, I'll figure it out. Going off the rails, man. <laughs> but not for nothing, no, you know what, I am gonna go political with it because, you know, it let's be honest, with everything that's going on right now, Do it. we need this change to happen. Like I said, it's already happened and I think in a lot of ways like I said, whether it be comics or just regular social issues, the change has already occurred. But yet, and I think that's why there's so much opposition. Like, you know, that's why you get so many people who unfortunately are trolling, you know, comic book creators online just because they spoke up about something that quite honestly needs to be said. You know, it's because like they realize that it's not just them anymore. You know, you're right. It's not just, you know, the, the bearded guy in his basement. You know, who, of course, will go after people for not being real fans. And, you know, and I kind of am envious of people now because as a kid, there weren't, you know, at least personally speaking, there weren't too many, like, major black superheroes that were around. So it's like, you know, I loved when I could find a a face and a voice that was like mine. So, and I feel like people should get that feeling of seeing somebody that represents them. Exactly. In a comic. And, you know, what's in the industry is, is just better for that. So yeah. if you're a, a guy or whomever who enjoys, you know, spandex superheroes or whatever, just being this one thing, that's fine. You can have that. But we're not even asking for something to necessarily go away. We're just asking for a better representation and just a less toxic environment. And I think it's a win-win situation. And anybody who's decent should see that and appreciate that and want the same. Yeah, my biggest thing that I've said to anybody who gets really upset about it, and I try to stay pretty safe online, this is more when I'm talking in person, is that, you know, until, like, there was someone who I was talking to who was kind of upset about the Riri thing, and he's like, well, it wasn't, it's not because she's black, She, he's just like, I just, I just like Tony Stark as Iron Man. And my first question to him is like, okay, is Joe Quesada going to come into your house and burn all your Iron Man trades, comics, all that stuff. Is anything with Tony Stark in it? Is he going to come into your house and personally burn that? He's like, and he looks at me like I'm crazy. He's like, well, of course not. I was like, it's still there. Right. You know, there is lots that you can still read. There's stuff, you know, there's stuff. That, that's the whole thing with me is like, you know, there's still lots to read. You know, if someone wants a good Iron Man story, go to your comic book store. Find a trade. You can find a good Tony Stark Iron Man story. That you probably haven't read that. There is fifty years of that. And and not for nothing though. It's not even like this is the first time he's not been Iron Man. Yeah. I mean James Rhodes, you know, after the Demon in the Bottle saga, was Iron Man for, you know, a decent amount of time. Matter of fact, when I started reading Iron Man, James Rhodes was, you know, in the suit. So for a long time, you know, before War Machine, I thought Iron Man was black. <laughs> <laughs> and the same thing when like with Green Lantern. For most of the time, like for for many kids, when they grew up with the Justice League Unlimited who hadn't read the comics, when they saw Green Lantern, they thought it was Jon Stewart. They didn't think it was Hal Jordan. And that right. and and that's more of a recent thing. But like, you know, I, I hope that this is something that passes. I hope that it can become something that like that continues on and can create change. And, 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 and again, I think the biggest thing is that comes from the the indies not even the indies of like image or idw but the the indies of self-publishing and the indies of guys like oni and black mask and you know places like that who are really trying to progress you talk about progression black mask is doing some it's doing some great things you know people push the envelope and you know really trying to be inclusive and and i think comics you know has always been that outcast of an industry you know when we're talking about from the 50s where we were seen as smut, you're talking about the 70s when it was all about the hippies and, you know, when and nowadays where it's or in the 90s when it was all just a bunch of nerds and, you know, and, and getting picked on. You know, I, I got picked on for wearing comic book shirts. Comics has kind of always been that outcast industry. 
you know, it's almost like use that, you know, use that to like, you know, let's make some change, you know, let's, let's, let's try to tell some stories that the movies aren't going to tell TV may not tell, you know, television may not tell, you know, let's, let's, let's try to do that and really, you know, try to change things. And, you know, that's hopefully where it's all going to go. Absolutely. Steve, this has been so much fun, like I said, of the day of all days to even try to talk about comics when, you know, <laughs> a lot of us are like in the grips of like sheer terror and panic. You know, I'm glad that at least we can sit down and at least, you know, enjoy some of what's going on in the world. Yeah. So again, thank you for, you know, stopping by again. And we may have to do a part three because I think we may have started something here that may be really cool because, you know, as we know with any you know, history buff that, you know, there's so many different levels of history and we may have to start like, you know, maybe bringing people on to tell, you know, part sides of the story that maybe we didn't get to cover. So, you know, obviously feel free to message me and there's all the sites where you can contact me after the ending theme where you can do that. But before you go, um, please tell everybody where they could find, you know, you online and some of your comics. Of course, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter, which are my two big ones at Steve underscore Petro. That's P-E-T-R-O. Uh, follow me on Twitter. It's a good time. I try to tweet as much as I can. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as well. I retweet Jack Kirby art all the time. <laughs> nice. I'm a little drunk, so I'm getting a little honest. Um, SweetieComics.com is uh, a book that I've worked on with Sean Dillon, who's an incredible artist. Um, look out for that. And I also have, um, uh, if you are following me on Twitter, especially, uh, please be on the lookout within the next couple months. I have several, uh, books and things that are going to be coming out that I am extremely excited about that I can't talk about quite yet. Another book, which has been my passion project, which is when we're talking about black and white slice of life, um, which is my baby. Um, I, I hopefully, um, that will be coming out within the spring. So uh, besides Sweetie, I've got a couple other books that will be coming out soon that I'm very excited about. And of course, when those books come out, you will be the first one, my friend, to fear the full scoop. Nice. Very awesome. Thanks for everybody who's been just supporting comic books and, you know, indies or otherwise. And thanks for allowing us to do what it is that we do and get drunk and ramble about how great comics are. Because really, if it's, if it weren't for you, none of us would get nearly as much fun doing this. Or maybe we would. I have no idea. But I, I highly doubt it. But <laughs> that'll do it for us for this episode of Agent Has Issues. And we will see you next issue. Peace. Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Please be sure to visit adrianhasissues.com to stream or download our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at Adrian Has Issues, on Instagram at Adrian Has Issues Pod, and follow us on Twitter at Adrian Has Issues. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the Satchel Podcast app, available on iOS and Android. Adrian Has Issues is a proud member of the Nerd Sloth Network, home to such great podcasts as Nerds on Tap, Cinefreak Critique, and Saturday Morning Cartoon Boom. Visit them at nerdsloth.com. <laughs>